He's shocked by pain and loss. The world is just bowled over by it. The world makes decisions based on it because they don't understand that it's divinely appointed. But Jesus gives Christians a framework for transitions. Jesus gives Christians a framework for pain and loss, doesn't he? Our framework for pain and loss is the cross. That's the framework. We have the cross for the present. Transitions that scrape at us, that wreck us. And then he gave us the the resurrection to understand our future. You know, we always talk about that we can't know our future. Well, you know, just live in the present because you don't know your future. If you're a Christian, you do know your future. It's not true. All of you right now who have put their trust in Jesus, you know your future. You know your ultimate future because you know the past. You know the future because you know what happened on the cross. I'm going to read an amazing quote by Tim Keller. I wish I had this memorized, but since I only work one day a week, I don't have a lot of time to do that. It says this, While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Isn't that amazing? And a a couple weeks ago when we went through uh, the Beatitudes, or the Beatitudes if you're Jillian Watson, um, what we learned is that God has given us future blessings in the present. The reason why we're blessed in the present is because we have the blessings of the future that ground us and immerse us in hope. And then what that does, as we got into the weeks after that, is it creates this identity in us of salt and light. So we, we, we become the very flavor and the illumination of Jesus Christ to our neighborhood, to our communities. That's what Dave's going to be doing when he goes to Romania. He's going to be salt and light in a place that's not real salty and not very lighty, if that's a word, I don't know. And then we learned last week that... Jesus comes to this people who he's delivering this sermon to, and he says, here's the thing, your righteousness, it has to exceed the righteousness of all the pastors, the priests, and the popes that you keep looking up to to gain your righteousness, or that has given you the example of the righteousness that you're supposed to have. And he said it actually has to exceed that. He didn't say you have to do away with all the things they do to keep the Mosaic law. But he said, there's a righteousness that has to exceed that because it has to be something that is immersing, that that is emerging from the heart. And then in chapter 5, we're going to go to the very end of the passage right now, in verse 48, if you want to look there with me. Jesus ups the ante, and he makes this ridiculous comment in verse 48. Now remember what I just said. If your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then we get to verse 48, and he says this. I'm not skipping the whole text, but this is what he says at the end of it. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he's saying not only does your righteousness, which you, by the way, don't have any of in and of yourself, 
Not only does that have to exceed the righteousness of the religious leaders, of all the pastors you're looking at, and all the priests you're looking at, and the Pope that you're looking at that's telling you, hey, watch my example of the way I've kept the law. Not only does it have to exceed and eclipse that, but it needs to be perfect. Like our Father in heaven is perfect. What do you do with that? I mean, how do we get into that? Are we going to preach works righteousness now? Are we going to say it's what we do? We just got to keep hammering it out? We're going to get there, man. We're going to get there. No, because clearly we're not going to get there. But he's asking for perfection. Here's the thing. When we think of perfection, here's how we think of it. We think something that's sort of a one-time thing, don't we? When you think of perfection, what do you think about? You probably think of a work of art. It's perfect. Da Vinci, it was perfect. You think of maybe like a no-hitter. Man, the guy just did it. It was a perfect ball game. Maybe think of a piece of music, something that was performed without any missed notes. It was excellent. It was perfect. Maybe you think of like a prepared dish. You go to a restaurant. You go to a Michael Simon joint. He prepares a dish for you, and it's just, mwah. It's perfect. Or maybe you think of a wedding. Unless you're a bridezilla, and then it'll never be perfect. But maybe you've, you, maybe you've prepared a wedding, or you've been a part of a wedding, or you've, or you've, uh, put to, you've uh, planned a wedding, and everything went perfect. Or maybe a relationship. And then you guys believe that. But what we do is we think perfection is momentary. God thinks perfection is eternal. God thinks of perfection as something that's sustaining in us. Something that's maturing in us. It's more of like an aged wine in us. It's more of like a redwood tree. If you've ever been to Yosemite National Forest in California, these massive just skyscraper trees that just are incredible to look at. So as we get into this passage, and we're just going to be skipping through this, because we could spend about six hours in each one of these points, and um, I just don't want to be standing here at 3 o'clock preaching to my wife. So we're going to do a little bit better than that. But one thing we want to remember as we get into these passages, as we're coming into these six examples that Jesus is giving us about how to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and how to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, is we want to remember this is not how we live to be saved. But this is how saved people live. So keep that in mind. Keep that in your heart as we dive into these passages, which we're going to start in verse 21, where Jesus says, you have heard it said. So when he says that, what Jesus is trying to bring us back to, what he's trying to point us to, is the law as was given to the people of Israel in Exodus and Leviticus. And what Jesus is doing right here is he's expanding the law. He's saying, this is the law, but here was the larger intent of the law. And so he gets right into it in verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So right now, the Israelites that he's talking to are going, yeah, we got that. We got that. Don't murder. We're liable to judgment if we murder. And then he throws this one out there. Verse 22, but I say to you that Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. 
And then he goes on to say in 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the, before the altar and go. And if you read on, he's talking about coming to terms quickly with people that we're angry with. And more specifically, people who are angry with us. People that have offenses against us. So what we learn here from the law about not murdering is that we learn that the heart of murder is anger. Being angry with your brother is murdering him in your heart. So what Jesus does is he just takes this thing that can cause us to be all puffed up, saying, well, I've never murdered anybody. He's saying, yeah, you have. No, but I, like, I've never like physically, yeah, you have. Have you ever been angry at somebody else? It's the equivalent, because murder is something that starts in the heart. And then he gives us a picture of what the transformed heart is. He says, make peace with your brother. Make peace. Jesus urges us to be hasty towards settling our sin. I mean, I don't think anybody here can be accused of being too hasty to settle their sin with somebody. Let me tell you, I just settled sin with somebody that I let fester for two years. Two years. I let it fester. I ignored the conviction of the Spirit. It got to a place where I had to make peace. I had to try to make peace. I had to try to reconcile. We don't always get reconciliation. The point is that we aim towards that. We try to do that. So Jesus is saying, be hasty towards settling your sin. Romans 13 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So the opposite of anger is loving those who have something against us and making sure that we are fast and trying to settle that. And what's our example for this? Well, Jesus would eventually be murdered for our sin to make peace and reconciliation to an angry God. And those are the people he's talking to. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to talk about removing the things that cause you, that pull you into that lustful intent which leads to an adulterous affair. So adultery, is what he's saying, begins in your heart before it becomes a physical thing. Proverbs 6 says, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Talking about being pulled towards not being faithful to your spouse. Don't be lured in. Don't let your heart lure you in. Because the transformed heart, what it does, what he's telling us here, is that a transformed heart is seeking to remove temptations. You want to cut out whatever tempts you towards sexual sin. Whatever feeds your imagination needs to be removed. He's not talking about literally chopping your hand or gouging your eye out. You know why? Because that's not really radical enough. Because you can gouge your eye, you can chop your hand out, and you can still be lustful in your heart. Amen? That's what happens. What he's saying is remove those things that are causing your eye to be lured into sexual temptation. And what do we learn from the gospel? Well, we learn that Jesus would overcome temptation so that our whole bodies could be saved from hell. 
That's gospel application right there. Verse 31, he gets into divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what he's aiming at here is that back in this culture, men could divorce their wives at will, right? So she looks at her wrong. He's like, here's a certificate of divorce. I'm out. Oh, you burned the hamburgers? Out. It could be any little thing. The man had that kind of power to divorce his wife at will. Jesus is saying that having no just cause for divorce and flippantly going from woman to woman is a violation of God's intention for marriage. Which is what? Well, it's two people becoming one flesh and modeling Christ's love for the church. Now, this is, a, this is a passage with a lot of layers, and we don't have a lot of time to break down and get into and sort of unpack all the different layers. But what I want to encourage you in is faithfulness. And to remind you that for those of you, and to listen to what I'm saying here, for those of you who have come through divorces that are forever going to be unreconciled, grace abounds for you. Grace abounds for you. Remember that. There is grace and mercy for all of us that have found ourselves in situations of which reconciliation now may be an impossibility. But for the rest of us, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, honoring your wife as the weaker vessel should be our aim. Ephesians 5 says, loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her should be our aim. And what do we see when we look at the gospel? What do we see when we look at Jesus? We see Jesus, who is the faithful bridegroom, who lays down his life and never leaves or forsakes us. Do you see see a theme here with what Jesus is driving at and how he is the one that's going to accomplish this so that we can mature in his accomplishment and become perfect? Verse 33 talks about oaths. He says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And then he kind of goes on to say, don't, how about just not swearing at all? Don't even swear is what he's saying. And at the end he says, in verse 37, let your yes be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So what he's really talking about is he's talking about lying. He's talking about a lack of integrity. He's talking about people back in those days that would not keep their promises if it wasn't tied to a particular oath. So it's a little infantile, isn't it? It's like saying, well, I never promised. I mean, I know I told you I was going to do that, but did I promise? It's kind of what he's talking about in today's vernacular. So at the heart of this is lying and lack of integrity. But the transformed heart, which he's driving at, is about truthfulness. It's about keeping promises. It's about the fact that our word should be enough. Because here's the thing. As believers, we're always under oath, aren't we? Because we serve an all-righteous, heavenly judge. And he expects us to keep the promises that we make. And what does the gospel tell us? Well, the gospel tells us that God kept his promise by sending Jesus, who obeyed God and fulfilled the promise that God made to mankind on the cross. That's the application. 38. 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And it goes on and on to tell you about going the extra mile. If somebody's suing you, just give them... If someone sues you for your coat, give them your other coat. If somebody wants you to walk a mile, walk an additional mile. So what he's driving at here is that he's saying there's no place for retaliation and vengeance in the life of a believer. We have sort of this idea, as they did back in that culture, going back to the Mosaic law, that punishment should fit the crime. There should be equity. So if you do this to me, I get to do this to you. What Jesus is advocating now is something entirely different. He's advocating mercy and grace, not giving people what they deserve. And in fact, giving them what they don't deserve. First Peter 2 says, when speaking about Jesus, he says, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's who we have to worry about, is the one who judges us justly, which will always be God. 1 Corinthians 6 says, why not, this is Paul talking to the church, he was saying, in in, in their dealings with one another, he just said, why not rather suffer wrong than to go and retaliate and try to get vengeance on someone and let them see a different side of you that isn't a witness to the Jesus that they think you serve. And of course, in the gospel, we see that Jesus provided the ultimate retaliation on the cross by offering mercy and grace and receiving our wrath and our judgment. That's what the gospel tells us about an eye for an eye. And then finally, in verse 43... You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Listen what he says here in 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? So what Jesus is saying here is that the heart, the opposite of loving our neighbor, the thing that doesn't feed into and vibe with this alleged supposed love for our neighbor would be that we would have so much love for one another, but we would have this despicable hate for those who we feel are against us, who we would call our enemies. We would have a lovelessness for them instead of seeing that we once were an enemy of God. But the transformed heart, what Jesus is driving at, he says, love them, pray for them, show yourselves as being sons of a loving and forgiving God. In Romans 12, Paul, uh, he quotes a passage from Proverbs. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. He says, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't overcome by evil, he says, but overcome evil with good. And you guys all got to look at who you are counting as your enemies. Because they're not your enemies. 
And if they know Christ, that's a whole different story. But if they don't know Christ, what they are is they're actually enemies of God. And God uses his sons and daughters to befriend people that are at enmity with him so that through us, they might not be enemies anymore. That's the call. That's the mission. And of course, the gospel shows us once again that Jesus was hated and he was killed by his enemies because of his great love for us. Verse 48, as we close. It's what we read in the beginning. It said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When we talk about perfection here, what he's talking about is completeness. And all of these things, all of these movements, all of these examples he's giving us, what they do is they show growth and maturity and completeness through the transitions that you're going through right now. Man, we just stress out over changes, don't we? We stress out over changes and transitions. But we never think that this is the very thing God uses to change and transition us into people who are more like Jesus. An author named Joe Thorne, I, I, if you guys are following me on Twitter, I posted this a couple days ago. But he, he gave this great quote out of this book that I've been reading from him. And it just really hit me. And it, really, it really meant a lot to me. It, it, it says this, uh, your anxieties are alleviated in the fatherhood of God. Your anxieties are alleviated in the fatherhood of God. What does he say here at the end? He says, as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect. What is Jesus saying? What is he really saying? What is he driving at here? Because I can't just walk out of here thinking, all right, man, perfection, I hope. You know, just, you know, I want to be nicer and I don't want to eat that extra piece of cake when I get home. I mean, that, that's how I, I need perfection in my life. I need to start hammering away at being better. Is that what he's driving at here? Because he says, you therefore must be perfect. But he doesn't stop there. He says, as your heavenly father is perfect. And what Jesus is saying here, and what we need to hear, what I need to hear, what the Krispinskis need to hear, is that we are not fatherless. That we are the children of a God who cannot and will not abandon the children he chooses to adopt. Of a God who is breaking our hearts so that they can be built back up and conformed to the heart of Jesus. So that we can not be angry. So that we cannot lust. So that we cannot be unfaithful. So that we cannot be untruthful. So that we cannot retaliate. So that we cannot hate our enemies. All of these things is making us like the person who has overcome the world. The person that is preaching this sermon to this people who are going through all the same transitions that we are going through. And it's making us less fearful in the process. Because that's what drives how we, are, how we approach the lanes that God puts us in. We're fearful because we're afraid of what might be coming on us. 
But instead of being more fearful, we become more faithful to our Father. Because being perfect like God is becoming more like Jesus. And as we become more like Jesus, the more we'll keep these laws through the transitions of our lives. And you know what's going to happen? We're going to transition to a greater likeness of Him. What's better than that? Just suffering? Without sanctification? You want to suffer? You want all of this to be for nothing? That's the world. The world suffers for nothing. But we suffer with hope and with kept promises. Second Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes not from us but from the Lord who is spirit. Let's pray. Lord, it's so hard to approach these things, understanding your grace, understanding your mercy, knowing that you've called us to act the miracle of the changed hearts that you've given us as you've saved us and that we now follow you. You also said that these things were going to be hard. You also said that in this world we were going to have trouble. You never said that tragedies weren't going to befall us. You never said that sicknesses weren't going to overcome us. What you did say was that you have overcome these things ultimately and forever. Lord, just help us believe that. Help us believe you when you say those things to us. Because we don't. Because we're wrecked in pain sometimes. Because we're struggling to believe. We're struggling to understand a sovereign God. Until we realize that it's that sovereignty, it's that belief in the finality of the goodness and greatness and graciousness and mercifulness of God that makes it so that we can endure these things. But when we're in these things, we're weak. So Lord, help us who are here, who are weak in these things. It's a good weakness. Because we need to depend on you. And we need to fall back into your arms. And may you use these occasions, Lord, to test our faith, to bring her into a greater love with you, a greater hope in your promises, greater relationships in our community, greater ties and connections with our church. Lord, use all of these things for our good, for your glory, and for our joy. Lord, sustain us in the moments when it feels like everything has been lost. Nothing is lost after you have found us. 
Lord, be with my brothers and sisters today as we sing together, as we sing right now about your grace and your peace, Lord. Let that fill our hearts today, we pray. All God's people said, amen. Let's stand.